Welcome to another edition of This Week in Digital Trust, 11M's regular conversation about all things tech policy, privacy, and cybersecurity. I'm Arj, I'm joined by Jordan. How are you going, Jordan? I'm good, I'm good. I'm enjoying some sunshine streaming through the window here in Melbourne. Very nice. I'm feeling the same. It's it's good to see the sun back out and the weather feeling like it's warming up, at least at some part of the day. But um, yeah, we're going to be talking about a federal privacy law in the US today. There's There's a, a lot of excitement over in the States around this one, so that's going to be interesting to sort of dive into and work out what's getting everyone so excited over there. And then later on in the pod, we're going to be talking about what are the seven megatrends that are basically going to shape and define our future, according to the CSIRO. They've put out a, a new report, one that they only put out once in a decade, and, and the latest one has just dropped. But um, first, let's go over to the US and find out what's going on there, because as I said, a lot of excitement. Some of it's positive excitement, positive energy, and some of it's a bit of angst and disgruntlement, disgruntledness. I don't know. Whatever it is, they're not that happy about it. Some some good Twitter battles about the future of privacy in the US. Yeah. So, I mean, as I said, it's about a new federal US privacy law. For those that don't know, the US doesn't actually have a federal privacy law like many other countries do. So, obviously, in Australia, we've got the Privacy Act. European countries fall under the GDPR. There are various countries around the world that have a federal privacy law, but the US does not. And it's been a sort of, I guess, a source of discussion, particularly among privacy advocates for many decades to say this is something we need. In lieu of a federal privacy law, they've got lots of bits and pieces of privacy legislation, right? They've got a Health Privacy Act. They've got like education and finance privacy, like sector specific privacy rules. And increasingly recently, they've got this like state based patchwork of different state-based privacy laws like the CCPA in California. Yeah, and as we've discussed in some of our previous podcasts, some of those recent state laws that have been passed have also sort of been subject to some level of lobbying by the tech industry and some criticism about the weakening of those laws. So now we have this proposed federal privacy law called the American Data Privacy and Protection Act. Uh, there was a draft published in early June. For the most part, it's it's a bipartisan piece of legislation, and it's actually kind of moved further along than maybe some of the previous efforts. So it's been working its way through the US's legislative process. The relevant committee that was in charge of the bill has passed it, and it's now going to be put to uh, the full chamber, the House of Reps, and, and then ultimately the Senate. So bit of progress there and a bit of bubbling excitement there that the US may soon have a federal privacy law. It's also got fairly broad support from a number of privacy advocates and scholars, but then as we're about to dive into, it's not uniform at all. There's some contention, but you know, the Electronic Frontiers Foundation, they've said they're disappointed with the bill and the California Privacy Protection Agency, which administers California's privacy laws, which I guess I should say the CCPA, the Californian Act, has kind of often been held up within the US as being the strongest. So they're opposed to the bill probably by virtue of the fact that they have quite a strong piece of legislation and some reasons that we're about to get into. Yeah, it's it's been really interesting watching the, the excitement, right? Because, you know, most OECD countries passed federal comprehensive privacy legislation in like the 80s, as Australia did. And so 40 years later, the US is potentially joining the party there. But yeah, the key battleground is this idea of preemption, right? You were just saying a lot of American states like California 
have relatively strong state-based privacy laws. And what this law will do is what's called preempt those laws, essentially override any state-based protections. There are some complexities and details there, which we won't get into, but it's upset a lot of people, but it's also the reason why this bill has been able to get everybody in the tent, right? Because the big tech companies don't want to deal with 50 different state-based pieces of legislation. And so they're willing to agree to a harder set of like real federal privacy protections in order to have a single standard rather than 50 different standards. It's the thing that's provided leverage for privacy advocates to get real meaningful protections into this bill that will satisfy the privacy rights side of the debate. I think that preemption question and getting away from 50 different state-based laws has been the main feature here that's allowed it to get as far as it has. I think that sense of like pragmatism behind this and that it's been framed and crafted in a way that brings everyone to the tent is key. I just want to read this quote that I came across, which is from the lawmaker who's the chair of the committee that kind of has pushed it through and now brought it to a full chamber vote. Representative Jan Schakowsky and her quote was, we have finally come up with a landmark compromise, the key word being compromise. Um, it's been a lot of work bringing these stakeholders together. I know everyone can probably find something they wished were different in the bill. On the other hand, I think we have a band-aid for the American people who are just fed up with a lack of privacy online. But real sense of like, look, sure, maybe it could be better and maybe you know people are going to have their criticisms, but really what we're trying to do is get everyone in the tent and get something over the line. Yeah, yeah, I think that's true. Daniel Solov, who's a quite a famous privacy professor, academic writer, described this preemptive effect of the bill as a Faustian bargain, uh, you know, deal with the devil, essentially, because he's pointing to a dynamic that I think is really interesting in what's gotten it to this stage, being tech companies want to avoid 50 different states making their own legislation, because what this is going to do is, from now and into the future, prevent states applying even higher standards as privacy law develops, and we're all watching as standards for privacy go up and up. You know, Australia's reviewing its act, EU's just continually ratcheting up its privacy protections. And so his concern is that it's so hard to legislate anything at the US federal level that without that state-based ratcheting up, driving higher standards, they'll have this law and it'll just sit there forever. It's a really, real tough one. I mean, for starters, like I always find these conversations in the US particularly coloured because they've got that dynamic of sort of states' rights and each state should be able to make up its own mind about these things and there's a natural resistance to federal level laws anyway. But the point being made by the proponents of the bill is that it doesn't help anyone in Ohio if California has got a very strong law. And as we are actually seeing play out when other states are trying to pass privacy laws is that if the makeup of their state-based legislature is such that the influence of lobbying and tech industry can exert significant influence, they end up with quite weak protections at a state-based level. And we need to kind of have some sort of federal law that allows those states where the weak laws are getting up to actually say, no, this is at least a minimum standard that applies for every American, uh, no matter where they live. I think that there's something in that argument that says if we don't have at least something, there's going to be states where there are blind spots. But then Solov's point, it's so true. I mean, they've been trying so hard to get to this point of a federal law that if all that capital has been spent 
in this moment. It's a rare moment in time, and we let the law that gets passed just be fixed in time now, and no state can down the track pass a stronger law based on you know evolution of technology. Then we've sort of fixed in time this weak law for perpetuity, essentially. Yeah, you know, it's taken them 40 years to get this far. If this is the standard that you're locking in for the next 40 years, then that's a worry. Anyway, it is actually quite a strong law in some ways. And I want to go through a couple of the elements of it, not everything, obviously, but a couple of the elements that I think are really interesting and are kind of relevant to the law reform debate here. We've said in the past that when EU or US or other big jurisdictions pass privacy laws, it really influences the law reform debate here, I think, because first of all, international consistency is really valuable. You know, it promotes the ability to transfer data between countries and for people to even just understand their rights. So consistency is important. And so if we see stronger protections in the US or in the EU, it really eases the argument for similar protections to apply here. So, you know, relevant to the Australian discussion. So so the first one, I think it's like the first section of the Act is entitled a duty of loyalty, which is kind of getting at this approach. We, we always talk about like notice and consent being the wrong approach, right? That you need to move past just asking people what to do with their data and putting the decisions on them and that you need to move towards more like organizational accountability and responsibility for using data appropriately and responsibly. So a duty of loyalty is this thing that uh, these two, Woodrow Hartzog and Neil Richards, two kind of privacy academics, have proposed as a means of getting past notice and consent. They're essentially proposing a kind of like a fiduciary duty, right? Or a duty for data holders to act in the best interests of the people whose data they hold. So the US Act uses that language, but it stops a little bit short of a full fiduciary duty or a duty to act in best interests and kind of limits it to duties around data minimization, you know, only collect what's necessary for a particular purpose and some higher levels of protection around sensitive data and privacy by design obligations and so on. So the specific obligations kind of fall short of a fiduciary duty, but it's titled as a duty of loyalty. And it's really in the language moving towards that kind of fiduciary or best interests obligation, which um, even just seeing the language in the US Act, I think is really interesting and kind of is a direction that, that we're considering going anyway in Australia as well. I guess one of the areas where people are now looking to privacy laws to sort of help promote technology that's fairer and, you know, much more transparent and also non-discriminatory, you know, so there's a lot of focus on kind of AI and algorithms and things like that. What does this law sort of do in regard to you know algorithmic fairness and, and discrimination? Yeah, in addition to that loyalty thing, it's got some protections around algorithms and protecting civil rights and discrimination. So um, what our Australian current act does is limits the use of certain protected characteristics, which is, you know, like that's what privacy acts tend to do, right? Focus on the data and say you're not allowed to use this data for particular purposes. The American Act has this prohibition in it on using any personal information. So not just the protected characteristics, but any personal information in order to discriminate on the basis of a protected characteristic. Those protected characteristics being things like race or sexual preference orientation, that kind of thing. And so it's really getting at these things like 
Facebook serving truck driving ads only to men or Facebook not serving ads for rental properties to certain racial minorities, for example, you know, whether or not that recommendation algorithm is based explicitly on the gender or the racial ethnic origin of a person, what often happens with these recommendation algorithms is they find a proxy like postcode or postcode plus the type of name or whatever it is and use that as the proxy. But in effect, what they're doing is the algorithm is discriminating based on the protected characteristic. And so what this law seems to be doing is saying, look, I don't care what data you're using. I don't care what proxy you're using. That's not relevant. If the outcome is that your algorithm is discriminating based on a protected characteristic, then breaking the law. Um, It also requires algorithmic impact assessments, which I think is really valuable. It only requires that for like very large companies, very large data holders. But yeah, there's a mandatory algorithmic impact assessment, including documenting steps to mitigate potential harms and so on. So yeah, it goes quite far. It goes a lot further on both those counts than say Australia's current act. There is a proposal in our Privacy Act review for mandatory PIAs for certain high-risk activities, uh, but it doesn't go quite as far. One of the areas where I really got a sense of the value of the state-based laws was around biometrics and the Illinois law around biometric information, which has now been used against kind of Clearview AI and facial recognition technologies that are sort of incredibly invasive. And so you've really got a sense of like, you know, really strong law around kind of biometrics at a state level has helped do that. But uh, biometrics generally and sensitive information generally is going to be clearly another key area that privacy is going to have to stare into, particularly with these technologies. Um, I know we've been talking about in Australia, like is the definition of what is personal information and sensitive information right? Is this law going to address that from a US perspective? It's interesting you mentioned the Illinois law because that's actually explicitly carved out, I think, of the state-based preemption. So that particular law is going to survive, which I think is like a real reflection of how significant it's become in terms of the outcomes it's it's achieved. But yeah, sensitive data is kind of one of the areas up for debate. There's a question in the discussion paper around what should be the limits of sensitive data under the Australian Privacy Act. Right now, it's a pretty constrained list. You know, it's political and affiliations and trade union memberships and biometrics, which is good, you know, racial, ethnic origin, religion, that kind of thing. But it doesn't, the current definition anyway, doesn't encompass this like much broader range of data, which like just if you ask a person on the street, they would say is sensitive. You know, things like financial data, precise geolocation, private messages, login, passwords, intimate images. There's this like stack of data that's not technically sensitive information in Australia. Um All of that is included in the definition of sensitive information in this US bill, which I think is really interesting, right? So it draws this like really broad category of sensitive data, which, you know, subject to higher protections, you need consent to the use of it and so on. Their definition of sensitive information covers all of this like broader stuff, financial data, login credentials, intimate images, any data about a minor counts as sensitive information under this law. Another really important category of sensitive information is information identifying an individual's online activities over time or across third-party websites or online services. So your browsing history under under this US law 
is sensitive information, which fits kind of people's intuitive. People feel pretty sensitive about their browsing history if you ask them. But the result of that in the US law is that effectively, because information about minors is sensitive and web browsing history is sensitive, targeted advertising based on either of those things will be banned under this US law, which I think is really significant. It's going to have a real impact on that industry because, you know, your Facebooks and your Googles are really built around tracking you on other people's websites, tracking you around the web and serving you targeted advertising. And that's just going to be off the table under this new law. Yeah, it remains to be seen whether it's going to be passed. It's obviously going to a vote. I think it was Solov. I read a comment from him saying that, you know, the challenge with this stuff is that privacy regulation for the most part is still pretty early in its journey like it's just really starting to take hold we've seen gdpr in the last three or four years ccpa since then we're just starting to kind of get these pieces of legislation that are contending with the challenges of technology and how data is being used in this kind of new world and so i I can't help share a little bit of nervousness about kind of locking in something and with these preemption clauses, not having the means to sort of have these state-based ways at hitting on specific problems and challenges and ratcheting up the regulations that we want to see. It's really easy to feel the same unease, but yeah, it'll be interesting to see how this plays out and whether those concerns take hold. I don't know enough about the US dynamics, but it certainly sounds like a worry to lock stuff in. I mean, what I love about privacy law generally is that like, we're still figuring out what it should look like. You know, these ideas of like, is notice and consent the right model or is, you know, the duty of loyalty? Should this be a fiduciary thing? How do we deal with algorithms? Are impact assessments enough? Do we regulate the data that gets used in the algorithm or do we regulate the outcome? What sensitive data? What are the most important categories that we need to protect the most? All of this is still contentious. You know, all of those questions are like, we don't know. We're still experimenting in different jurisdictions and trying to work it out. It's why I find this debate fascinating to watch in the US and equally or even more so because it's my home country, but fascinating to participate in in the Privacy Act review here. So yeah, love talking about it. It made me in a weird way a little bit more anxious about the Privacy Act review because you know, it's something we've been pushing for and it seems like it's taken a lot of advocacy and, frankly, change of government to get us to a point where it's now on the table. And, it, yeah, it made me a little bit more anxious to sort of think about this as, well, you know, these moments, if we we're looking at federal-based privacy reform, they don't come around that often. And the, the space is so fluid and the challenges are not going to be solved this year or next year. Like in five years' time, we're going to have something that's evolved in the landscape that we're going to need to address from a privacy form perspective and it, it you know it did kind of give me pause like you know i was starting to hear eminem in my head it was like we've got one shot to get this right right now yeah we have a slightly better track record here right like we open it up roughly every 10 years the last major changes to the privacy act were 10 years ago there were some pretty major changes about 10 years before that so we do better than the US, obviously, but even that, you know, 10 years, a lot changes in 10 years. So yeah, let's, let's try to get it as right as we can.
Okay, well, our next topic of conversation is a new report out from the CSIRO called Our Future World. Uh, it's actually a report they put out once in a decade, so the last one being 2012, and it identifies seven global trends that, you know, in their words, hold the key to the challenges and opportunities ahead. So we thought we'd touch on this one briefly because it's got some interesting kind of relevance to some of the topics we often talk about on the podcast. So seven global megatrends. What's a megatrend? Well, a megatrend is... a trajectory of change likely to have a substantial and transformative impact on individuals, organizations, and societies. Uh, so something that kind of unfolds over years and decades. I think the blog post that they put out or the foreword for the report also talked about this idea of like there are these major kind of rips and currents that you see in the, you know, if you're in the ocean and you can get into trouble because of those rips and currents but if you sort of manage them right and you're surfing you can kind of use them to get out the back of the waves and so it's these big shifting currents that depending on how we manage them can be good for us or bad for us so yeah the first report that kind of set out these megatrends was released in 2012 this year the seven megatrends as i said three of them are kind of in our space essentially three of them are digital policy and trust the four that aren't us are you know adapting to climate change uh being leaner cleaner and greener which is related it's like efficiency and you know managing consumption uh, the escalating health imperatives, so COVID, but also, you know, getting better healthcare to populations around the world. Um, geopolitical shifts, you know, pointing to the war in Ukraine and increasing kind of instability globally. Those are four, the four kind of non-digital policy and trust megatrends. And then three, the remaining three are really about digital AI and trust. I mean, pretty significant, right? The CSIRO thinks that three out of seven of the biggest trends over the next decade are digital, AI, and diversity, equality, and transparency. Just to give you a little taste, the first one in our wheelhouse diving into digital is focused on the rapidly growing digital and data economy. So it's things like uh, the Internet of Things and new industrial technologies and monitoring capabilities, growth in e-commerce and online services, digital health, more data-driven organizations, more remote working, you know, obviously digital trust, cybersecurity, privacy, all core to driving that theme. Um, increasingly autonomous is another of the themes. So that's focused on the rise of artificial intelligence, which we talk about all the time. They're referencing, you know, increasing adoption and growing range of uses of AI or machine learning technologies. They make a big deal of how research and development in that area is blowing up all over the world and really expanding, except depressingly in Australia, where there's had this great stat that's R&D expenditure across all Australian organisations in 2019-2020 was around $35.6 billion, which has gone down from previous periods. And that's less than what Amazon and Alphabet individually spend. Amazon and Alphabet both spend more on R&D than our entire economy, which is kind of a depressing stat. Yeah, also like a reinforcement of just the dominance of, you know, the digital world over the entire world, you know, like the biggest digital players, Amazon and Alphabet, are just mega and operating at the scale of governments and countries. 
And then the last trend relevant to us is unlocking the human dimension, which is focused on trust and the increasing importance of diversity, equality, equity, and transparency in business policy and community decision-making, which again is something that we talk a lot about in the technology context, you know, trust in organizations, combating misinformation, building relationships and transparency and caring for consumers, but also in the policy world, bringing those diverse voices and bringing marginalized groups and communities into decision-making and into policy designs. And I think a lot of the issues we speak about are really recognizing that seventh megatrend, trying to put that human dimension back into consideration around any of these things. For me, there was like a real linearity with the last three. It's kind of like the world is becoming more technological and digital, like we're diving into digital. That's been happening for maybe more than the last 10 years. But not only has it become more digital, it's becoming more autonomous. So the machines are kind of taking over a lot more. And so to the extent that we're using technology more, the technology is out of our control and starting to do things that are self-driven. And we end up becoming, I guess, more sort of just the recipients of the impacts of technology. And so then the seventh megatrend kind of steps in and says, well, actually, we need to recenter humans into this. We need to think about, you know, how this technology is affecting our societies, how it's affecting individual experiences, not just business outcomes or economic outcomes or whatever. Let's think about all of those human subjective experiences around fairness and well-being and trust and make those front and center and so to me it's sort of one built on the other and leads leads you to the seventh one there's a circularity to it as well because the next step for me is that like getting that human dimension the trust the participation the transparency right is then an enabler for the drive into digital um you know, unless you have the social license lined up, unless you have well-designed services that don't alienate people and that they feel in control over, then you slow your ability to adopt those new technologies. For the most part, conversations about megatrends tend to be up in the clouds, a very high level, but there were some quotes in there that I also thought were a little bit more pragmatic and practical. I love this quote, which was about AI specifically in in relation to that seventh megatrend, but it was, you know, 68% of Australians do not trust AI systems yet 72 to 81% would be willing to use an AI system if assurance mechanisms were in place. Talking about things like independent AI ethics reviews and codes of conduct, sort of conversations we've had before that you have these principles and it's now we're at a point, I think, in our technology maturity where we're saying, well, how do we actualize these principles? How do we audit against them? How do we assure against them? So there were some sort of pointers in there about how businesses can actually make that trust real really underscores that necessity of getting that trust bit right as well not to want to end on a negative note but my worry was those are some seven pretty serious challenges and i don't i don't know if we have the global sort of brain power and cohesion to get across them before the next 10-year report is out yeah yeah i mean god i don't i don't the other four what a nightmare not our problem though jordan <laughs> like we're about yeah they're not our problem we'll, we'll take three we'll take three we'll take the bottom three someone else can deal with the others and i i boil them down to trust right this is my oversimplification all three of those is putting the human at the center getting the trust getting the relationship right and the rest will flow so i'm trying to turn it into an optimistic note to end on that's the silver lining yeah you've brought me back around we might yet manage the next decade good one well uh, nice note to end indeed chat to you again next week see you john